you've heard Adrian speak before here or elsewhere. He's a well-known national figure explaining the Christian faith in all sorts of different contexts. Um, and he was here at Christmas, and he's, he's, he comes regularly to our church, so he needs very little introduction uh, for most of us. But if you're visiting here today, um, this is just for your benefit. So we're very delighted that Adrian's here. And as Terry said, he's, st- he's speaking this morning, and we're following up this evening. So we're going to follow through, but he's decided he's going to go home for this evening and leave it to me to sort out all the implications of his talk this morning. So thanks for that, Adrian. And, but we really want to welcome Adrian, so let's give him a big welcome as he comes now this morning. Adrian Holloway. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Great. Thank you, Terry. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for your welcome. Um, it's great to be here. And for those of you who I don't know, particularly those of you, maybe this is your very first time here in this building, I thought I'd just begin, if it's okay with you, uh, just for a bit of a laugh, I thought I'd begin by showing you 60 seconds of photos from my life. This is just to help us get to know each other better. So this is just a bit of fun. Is that okay? Yeah? Are you sure that's okay? Great, okay. So anyway, first photograph, me as a baby. Thank you for that R. Um, As you can see, ladies and gentlemen, I was actually born with a receding hairline. (laughs) And uh, also, if you look very carefully, you'll see that I was also born with a squint, which means that wherever you are seated in this womb, at least one of my eyes is looking at you (laughs) right now. Next photograph, me, age seven. As you can see, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've really got a number of problems here. (laughs) In fact, we could spend the whole of this morning going through my problems one by one. But just to choose one of my many problems, you can see that what has happened here is that my mum has got up the old kitchen scissors. (laughs) And she's tried to cut my fringe straight but she's gone ever so slightly uphill. Can you see that? (laughs) Next photograph, me in a band. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When I was a student, I too was in a band. And Jim, standing on one side of me, Jim has a bit of a pout. Can you see his lips pouting? Yes? That's because Jim's been in a band before. Roddy and me, however, we haven't been in a band before, so we're just trying to look cool, you know, like you do. Next photograph, me on my stag day. Just to explain, if you're not from this country, here in Britain, if you are a man and you want to get married, you first have to dress up as an ostrich jockey. Anyway, now I'm married to my wonderful wife, Julia, and we have these four uh, lovely daughters. And so I'm now 47 years into my journey through life. And probably all of us here would agree that during the course of a typical 70, 80, 90-year life, there usually comes a point, a moment. Now, this moment may only last for five minutes. But at least for those five minutes of our entire life, you and I ask this question, am I alive for a reason? I can see, talk, think, feel, I can have fun, but is there any purpose 
to my life. For at least those five minutes, we ask, why am I here? For that matter, why is anything here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why did anything begin to exist? Why is there a universe with me living in it? Why is there a planet Earth with me living on it? You know I showed you a few photos from my life? Well, you could take your phone right now and you could show me a few photos from yours. But once we've added those photos together, does it mean anything? In the greater scheme of things? Or are we just meaningless bags of chemicals? Do our lives count for anything? Is life ultimately pointless? And during those five minutes, while we are thinking about this big question, along comes a 33-year-old man. And he is definitely the most famous man who's ever lived. And he looks you and me in the eye this morning. And he says, you're not an accident. Jesus of Nazareth says to you and me, you're supposed to be here. You are worth something. Jesus of Nazareth says there really is a loving God. A loving God who always planned that one day you would exist. And now this loving God has brought you into existence deliberately on purpose in the hope of having the most wonderful love relationship with you. A relationship that is good, not just for this life, but it's so good that it goes on into the next, into a place where you'll never be bored. A place where you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. This is a place where every day will be better than the one before. Now that's quite a claim. It's such a bold claim that eventually I decided it probably was worth exploring. So what happened to me? Well, I didn't go to church. In fact, I didn't have any friends who went to church. But then out of the blue, I was invited along to a church which actually, I can tell you, is quite like this church, Wimbledon Baptist Church. And I had loads of questions. One of those many questions was, well, hang on a minute. Surely you can't trust the Bible. You see, I wasn't looking for God. I certainly did not want to believe a lot of nonsense. I went on to do a history degree at university, and eventually I became a reporter for the Times newspaper in London. Then I became a radio presenter for the BBC. And at the BBC, I was trained to be cynical. I was trained how to doubt and disbelieve everything and everyone. So, when I first came across a church like this church, it seemed to me that the whole of Christianity either stood or fell on the Bible's claim that Jesus really was the unique Son of God who rose from the dead. So, are there any good reasons why a skeptical person would come to trust the Bible. Well, let's start by asking, is what the New Testament says about Jesus supported by any evidence outside the Bible? I mean, were there, for example, any 
non-Christians in ancient history who can tell us anything about the historical Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, For example, there's a first century Jewish historian called Josephus, and his two original sections about Jesus survive today, unchanged and unaltered in an Arabic version. There's a Roman historian, in fact, the main Roman historian of this period, Tacitus. There's Pliny the Younger, who uh, became the Roman governor of Bithynia, which today we would call Northwest Turkey. Uh, There's a satirist called Lucian of Samosata, and then there's a violently anti-Christian, aggressively anti-Christian source called the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. Now, all of these are non-Christian, in fact, they're all anti-Christian early sources, and they all give us information about the real historical Jesus. Now, there are several other non-Christian early sources, but just for the sake of time, if we were to take just the five that I've mentioned. Here is our question. Our question is, what would we know about Jesus from the ancient world if we totally ignored the Bible? Well, both Josephus and Lucian say that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny, the Talmud, and Lucian imply that Jesus was a powerful and honored teacher. So the Talmud indicates that Jesus performed miraculous feats but that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fourth, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that Jesus was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus says this happened under Pontius Pilate. The Talmud says it was on the eve of the Jewish Passover, which is exactly as the New Testament describes. Fifthly, Josephus has reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sixthly, he says that Jesus' followers believe that he was the Christ or the Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. So, as it happens, there is unbiased support for the Bible's version of events from early non-Christian, even from anti-Christian sources. Yeah, but hang on a minute. How could these ancient non-Christian early sources lead me into a relationship with God? I mean, come on, isn't the New Testament really the product of exaggerated stories and Chinese whispers? Maybe Jesus' followers got a bit carried away with excitement. In that period, after Jesus' resurrection, but before the New Testament documents first got written down. I mean, after all, come on, wasn't it hundreds of years later that the New Testament documents eventually did get written down? All those stories about Jesus eventually got written down a long time afterwards, didn't they? Well, uh, Jesus died in around 33 AD, and we have got a letter surviving today. Today, this letter is called 1 Corinthians, and it contains within it an account of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we can date this account or this list back to within a few months of the actual event. So, writing in around 55 AD, the author of this letter says, or writes, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And if we were to study the original Greek that was written here, 
we would see that that phrase indicates that the author thinks he's passing on a, an established, well-established tradition or creed or list. Here's what he's passing on. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Now, this passage presents several problems for anyone suggesting that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing 22 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact or not, because the majority of the 500 or so witnesses are still alive in 55 AD, and they are willing to be interviewed. And then for a number of technical reasons to do with the Greek words and even Aramaic words that are included in this passage, this passage is thought to be a much earlier creedal statement. It's likely that Paul picked up or collected this list of resurrection appearances of Christ shortly after his own conversion in Damascus or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem to meet with two leaders of the early Christian church, Peter and James. James was actually Jesus' brother. And this visit happens sometime around 35 AD. And actually Paul talks about this visit in one of his other letters called Galatians in chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Now here is the key point for us to consider, it turns out that there is a wide agreement among scholars from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different persuasions that this list of the resurrection appearances of Jesus was already well established when Paul collected it in 35 AD. This list not only existed as early as 35 AD, but it had been a well-established tradition at the time when Paul picked it up, sometime around 35 AD. This shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. This shows that the resurrection appearances of Jesus are definitely not a much later legendary development. So we've got a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. But if you're looking for the first full-length biography of Jesus, then conservative scholars argue that Mark's gospel, which was the first to be written, was completed sometime around 60 AD, and Luke shortly afterwards. Now, the standard dating of the gospels in so-called liberal circles would be something like Mark, written in the 70s, Matthew and Luke written in the 80s AD and John in the 90s AD. Those dates, if you like, would be down one end of the spectrum. But recently, conservative scholars have presented powerful reasons for thinking that Mark's gospel was written sometime around 60 AD. 
So if Jesus died in 33 AD, on that basis, the time gap would be 60 minus 33, what's that? 27. 60 minus 33, a time gap of 27 years. Question, isn't 27 years a very long time gap? Well, not if it's an eyewitness account. You know, when I was a journalist and I was working in central London, the national newspapers, we were always waiting for, journal, for, for, for politicians to publish his or her diaries. And when they did publish their diaries, we would always regard their first-hand eyewitness account of what really happened in 10 Downing Street. We consider that to be more reliable and more authoritative, because it's an eyewitness account, than the press reports that came out at the time, even if it's 30 years later that they published their diaries. On this subject, maybe I can just tell you a funny story. One time, folks, I was driving my car fairly late at night uh, in Crawley in West Sussex, and as I'm pulling away from a roundabout, I see flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror. I am being pulled over by the police. Now, normally when this happens, I have to confess this has happened to me a number of times. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that kind of gave it away, didn't it? Normally when this happens, I immediately feel guilty. I immediately feel guilty because I already know what it is that I've done wrong. But I have to be honest, ladies and gentlemen, on this occasion, I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't think of anything that I had done wrong. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe the policeman's just bored. Or maybe he's seen how well I'm driving. He wants to pull me over and congratulate me on my driving. But then I realized, now, hang on a minute. Maybe... He's seen my Christian car sticker. He's seen how well I'm driving. He's put the two together. He wants to ask me about Jesus. And so I was feeling pretty confident as I wound down my window. He says, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. He said, were you aware that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? You know, I, I, just in my mind, I'm thinking, I hadn't realized that early indication was an offense. <laughs> he says, um, step out of the vehicle, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? Oh, no. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, that's a really good question. So I said, look, you know, that's a really good question. Let me just think. Um, uh, um, uh, three months ago, I said. <laughs> he said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your responses to my questions are a bit slow. <laughs> so I blow into this breathalyzer kit. I hand it to him. And I say to him, I say to him, he's looking at the result. I say to him, it's negative, isn't it? He said, yes, sir, it is negative. It must be broken. <laughs> he said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually... He let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before junctions. <laughs> but what if, as we were having that conversation by the side of the road, what if a little crowd of people had gathered, a crowd of pedestrians around the pavement, and what if, as 
I drove away, and as the police officer drove away, what if, what if each one had been given paper and pen and they'd each written down their eyewitness account of that conversation and of what happened? And what if somebody collected them together and then handed them here to Dave on the front row? What Dave would be getting would be a collection of different eyewitness accounts of the same event. And folks, much of the New Testament is written by eyewitnesses. The important thing for us to understand is that that is the case. Matthew and John were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. Peter's account, Peter's gospel, is written down by a scribe, Mark. But Mark himself is an actor in the New Testament story. We can see Mark in the narrative. Meanwhile, Luke traveled with Paul. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, was also an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. But many people are totally unaware of any of this. Many people think that the New Testament is the product of Chinese whispers. Now, Professor A.N. Sherwin-White of St. John's College, Oxford University, studied this particular question as a Roman historian. And he concluded that it takes two full or complete generations for the core truth of historical events to become corrupted by legendary embellishment. In other words, Dr. Sherwin-White was concerned with those bits of the New Testament that were written by people who knew the eyewitnesses. Yeah? And according to Dr. Sherwin-White, the New Testament documents as a result are written too early for accurate historical information about the real Jesus to have become corrupted by legendary development. The Gospels are written too early. The New Testament documents are written too early before Chinese whispers could ever have become a factor. Yeah, okay, but hang on. This just prompts another good question. Look, even if I did accept that the eyewitnesses didn't exaggerate when they wrote down what they wrote down, how do I know that the copy of the Bible that I could buy in W.H. Smith's or Waterstones today, how do I know that that is an accurate copy of what those people in the first century originally wrote? I mean, this is only a copy. The original parchments have been lost, so for all we know, during the copying process, all sorts of errors could have crept in. What we're asking is, how can we be sure that the New Testament is free from mistakes, especially as the original parchments have disintegrated? The answer is actually, we can be sure through the science of textual criticism. In fact, we can be sure we've got an accurate copy of the original. Now, here is why. This table gives us a chance to compare the New Testament to other ancient books, which today are considered to be trustworthy. Now, we don't have the originals of any of the six works that are listed here in the extreme left-hand column. But before these disappeared, the originals were copied. So what historians do is they look at the time gap between when the original was written, so for example, 
the original Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus wrote his works 100 AD. The earliest surviving copy is created in 1100 AD, giving us a time gap, in the case of Tacitus, the Roman historian, a time gap of 1,000 years. So, obviously, the shorter the time gap between the earliest surviving copy and the original, the shorter the time gap, the more certain we can be that we have an accurate copy of the original. Well, as you can see, the New Testament does really rather well by comparison because its various books are written between 49 and 95 AD. Now, the earliest bit of the New Testament anywhere in the entire world is very close to where we are right now. It's in Manchester. It's in the John Ryland's library. And it's a part of John's Gospel that has been dated 130 AD. Incidentally, nobody disputes that dating. Now, 130 AD is only 40 years after John wrote his Gospel. Now, to you and me, of course, 40 years is a long time, but it's like a photocopy when compared to these other documents where the time gap is anything up to 1,000 years. So the New Testament does very well by comparison. And that, if you like, folks, is the first leg of the argument for the reliable transmission of these scriptures. And the second leg, well, the second leg is all to do with the vast number of identical surviving copies that exist today. And to explain the second leg of the argument, I'd now like to attempt with you guys, if I may, a humorous illustration. Imagine with me for a moment that you have a relative called Aunt Sally. Your Aunt Sally has discovered the secret of perpetual youth. Your Aunt Sally makes chocolate brownies that actually cause the people who eat her brownies to look younger. Well, as you can imagine, Aunt Sally's recipe for her chocolate brownies is a closely guarded secret. Your Aunt Sally doesn't have a computer, a laptop. She doesn't have a photocopier in her room, in her house. All she does is she writes down her recipe in her own handwriting. And because she's a generous soul, Aunt Sally gives one copy in her own handwriting of her recipe to each of her three best friends. There are a total of four original copies of Aunt Sally's recipe in existence. And all is going well until one fateful day. Aunt Sally's dog eats her original copy for her recipe, for her brownies that make you look younger. In a panic, Aunt Sally contacts her, best three, her three best friends, only to discover that each of her three best friends have also suffered a similar mishap. One lost her copy of the recipe during a house move two years ago. A second inexplicably threw her copy of the recipe away. A third lost her copy of the recipe in a house fire. Aunt Sally slumps to the ground in tears. She calls out to her friends, is there anything you can do to help me? At this point, each of her three best friends make a dramatic confession. They say, Sally, we never really knew how to tell you this before, but the truth is, Sally, that before we lost our copy of your recipe, 
all three of us, we each made 10 copies of your recipe, and we gave one to each of our 10 best friends. Rather than Sally being sad or angry at this news, Sally is delighted. She jumps off the floor. She punches the air. She's rejoicing in the news. 30 copies of her recipe, wherein is hidden the secret of perpetual youth, still exist. And so comes the great day where Aunt Sally summons these 30 people to her home, and they each arrive holding their copy of the recipe wherein is the hidden, the secret of perpetual youth. And Aunt Sally takes the 30 copies, and she lays them symmetrically in rows on her living room carpet. And then Aunt Sally gets down on her hands and knees, and she studies each and every one of the 30 copies. And Aunt Sally discovers that 27 of the 30 are identical. Word for word, identical. But documents 14 and documents 17 have insertions in them that none of the other copies have. And those insertions are not identical because document 14 has the insertion, then let the brownies stand to cool. Whereas document 17 just has the command, let stand. Meanwhile, document 21 has a comma and the word and that none of the other 29 documents have. Now here is the key question. Do you think that Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct the original text of her recipe from the 30 copies? Yes. Yes, she can. Because 27 of the 30 were identical. The textual variants in documents 14, 17, and 21 are obviously later insertions that did not appear in the original. And that, ladies and gentlemen in a very simplified form, is the situation that we have with the New Testament. Because down here, in the extreme right-hand column, we have an embarrassment of riches. We have 5,800... In fact, there's numbers going up all the time because people are finding them all the time. We have 5,800 Greek manuscripts discovered in locations all over the ancient world. And it is the similarity between them, and for that matter, the 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and a further 9,000 in Ethiopic, Slavic, and Armenian, which means that when we put all of these copies together, we can accurately reconstruct the original text of the New Testament from all of the copies. If you have stacks of ancient copies found all over the ancient world, and they're all essentially saying the same thing, there cannot have been exaggeration going on because if there had been exaggeration going on, all the different copies would all be saying different things. If all the copies are all saying the same thing, then whoever's been doing the copying must have been copying very accurately. With so many early copies from so many different places saying the same thing, we can be sure that the New Testament that we have in our hands today is an accurate copy of what was originally written. Summing up, Sir Frederick Kenyon, an expert on Greek papyri, formerly a director of the British Museum, said that the last doubt has now been removed. We now know that the New Testament we have in our hands today is an accurate copy of what they originally wrote. So in summary, it seems that actually there wasn't corruption of early, original information about the historical Jesus before the New Testament documents ever got written down. Nor has there been corruption of that information since, as those 
documents were subsequently copied. Okay, someone says. Adrian, thanks for your talk uh, this morning, but hey, look, here's where I'm at. The Bible says that miracles have happened, and I think miracles are nonsense, to which I would say, okay, fair enough. Let us take the most spectacular and arguably the most important miracle in the Bible, the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead, which, if it did happen, it would demonstrate Jesus' divinity, his supremacy, and his authority. And incidentally, Jesus himself claimed, in predicting his resurrection, he said that is exactly what his physical resurrection from the dead would show. Okay. Dr. Gary Habermas has made a detailed study of every book and every article which credentialed scholars have published on the resurrection since 1975. Then he and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, selected only those facts that the vast majority of scholars, including skeptical scholars, accept as historical fact. In other words, they chose to work only with those facts that the overwhelming majority of academics, both Christian and non-Christian academics, consider to be reliable. So here are four of those minimal facts. Remember, these are facts that are accepted by scholars who oppose the resurrection. Number one, that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Number two, that Jesus' tomb was empty. Thirdly, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he had appeared to them. And fourthly, the conversion of the anti-Christian persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Now, if you were a member of a jury at a trial right now, if you had just been sent into the deliberation room to consider your verdict, at this moment, you and your 11 colleagues, you would be looking for a verdict that best fits all the facts. You would be looking for a verdict that doesn't strain or minimize the known facts. You would be looking for the verdict that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason why I personally became persuaded that Jesus of Nazareth must have risen from the dead is because the resurrection explanation of these facts outdistances all the other competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection explanation is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all the known facts. And any alternative explanatory theory also has to account for the explosive growth of Christianity. Because we know that Christianity burst into life with thousands of Jews worshipping a carpenter in Jerusalem. But no historian would ever have predicted this because first century Jews were strict monotheists. The last thing they wanted to do in life was to worship a human being. They thought worshipping a man, in this case a carpenter, was an appalling idea. They thought it was idolatry. 
So why did thousands of these people suddenly, overnight, commit idolatry and start worshipping a man, in this case Jesus, as God? I mean, can I ask you the question, what would it take you to do something tomorrow morning that today you think that thing is disgusting and appalling and repulsive? Well, that is what worshipping a man was to a first century monotheistic Jew. It was disgusting and appalling and repulsive. Yet overnight, we know that thousands of them suddenly did it. You see, folks, strictly speaking, Christianity should not exist. The so-called resurrection appearances of Jesus, they should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb guarded by soldiers. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews and such a political threat to the Romans that these two groups had conspired together to get Jesus killed. The whole point of killing Jesus was to snuff out his embryonic movement. The last thing the Jews and the Romans wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that Jesus had risen from the dead. If the Jews or the Romans had had Jesus' dead body, then as soon as the first Christians started touring Jerusalem, punching the air, saying, Jesus is alive, Christ is risen, if they'd had the dead body, the Jews or the Romans would have put it on a cart and wheeled it behind the Christians saying, no, no, he's not alive. No, look, he's dead. Come and see for yourself. Come and gather around. Come and touch it. There's his dead body. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. Finally, let me ask you the same question humorously as we close. Imagine that you lived on the moon in 33 AD and you looked down on the Mediterranean world and you had to bet your life on either the message of 12 fishermen who worship a crucified carpenter on their message, taking over the entire Roman Empire within 300 years, or, alternatively, you could bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the 12 fishermen within a generation. Okay, who would your money be on? you would bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the fishermen within a generation. And yet, today, we name our children Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. Finally, folks, my story is this. It seemed reasonable to me that if God made the universe, you would almost expect that at some point this God might want to reveal himself to these creatures that he's gone to all this trouble to create. All the Bible is saying is that that's what was happening through this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said that you can know a loving God. Jesus said that you can experience God's love. Jesus said that God so loved you that he gave his only son so that if you believe in him, you won't perish. No, you can have eternal life. What an offer. You can follow the evidence where it leads. 
you can know exactly the love, the power, the security that Jesus promised. And you won't have to commit intellectual suicide to get it. For me, folks, finding out that there really is a loving God and coming to know him personally, that has been the single most thrilling discovery of my life. It's been great being with you. Thank you for listening to me. I'll see you again next time. God bless you. Thank you very much.